Our series is The Art of Being Human. And the question we've been zeroing in on for the last four or five weeks is, what does it mean to come alive and flourish as a human being? And we've been going all the way back to the story of our origins in the book of Genesis for the answers to that question. And here's what we've learned so far. Let me encapsulate just a little bit. God created Adam and Eve, our parents, to be co-partners with him in his mission for this planet that he loves so dearly. God placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden called Eden that was situated in the very center of this earth and that was yet that is that was yet undeveloped full of undeveloped potential and he gave them a mission that we have been calling during this series the Eden Project. This is what God said, how he expressed it in Genesis 1.28. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase. And then he said, fill the earth. Now when God said fill the earth, he's talking about create a society. Populate this planet with generations of people who I am going to gift with all different kinds of abilities and talents to carry out a variety of different professions, careers, and callings. Painters and artists and engineers and teachers and economists and builders and construction workers and every other profession that's represented in this room. God sent us out to build and make something of this world. And then the second thing God said is to go out and subdue the earth. That's the idea there, as we've been saying, is to tame the earth, bring order out of the potential, and then spread this God-saturated culture, harmony, and beauty, spread Eden to, to the four corners of the earth. And that is the mission that God gave humanity, and it's a mission that God has never backed off of. That is still his heart for humanity, and for us especially as the church. But Last week, we learned that a creature called the serpent encountered Eve at this very unique tree that was situated at the center of the garden. And the scripture, and and this serpent spoke to Eve. And now last week, uh, I, I made the statement that the scripture doesn't teach that animals talk, okay? We're not into jungle book fantasy and, and Disney fantasy here. But in this particular case, the serpent, whom the Bible identifies as Satan, that's one of his titles, he took the form of a serpent. And he appeared appeared as one of the creatures that Eve would have been familiar with and, and drew her curiosity toward this one particular tree in the center of the garden. And it was this one tree that God had said among all the trees of the garden that you can freely eat of, don't eat of this tree in the day that you die, if you do. Uh, in, you will, in the day that you eat, you will die if you partake of this tree. Now the name of the tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was not a magic tree with magic fruit. What it represented was God at the center of all creation who alone has the knowledge and the wisdom to define what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And, and humanity was never to usurp that, never to try to take over the center and the determination of what is good and evil. 
Well, this is how the temptation unfolded. In chapter 3, verse number 1, the serpent in his craftiness approached Eve, and you'll notice that he did not come at her with a bold, direct, declarative statement. That comes a little bit later. He comes to her, first of all, with a question. In fact, it is the first recorded question in the entire Bible. And it is a question that goes like this. Did God really say? Satan is questioning the word of God. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, you'll want to take a notice here that the serpent also twists what God had said. And he does that to mischaracterize God as placing restrictions upon Adam and Eve and their humanity. And so Eve responds to him. She says, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden. Now, Satan had said, Satan's question to her was, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? See, he was twisting it. God never said that. And, and Eve sets him straight here. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree in the center of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, you also want to notice here that Eve adds something to what God had said that God didn't say. But when she adds it, it reveals that she now has an elevated view of God as being overly restrictive. And that's exactly what Satan was after. When she added the little phrase, and you must not touch that tree, well, Satan had led her to the negative view of God that he was, that he was after. And then verse number four comes Satan's direct, head-on, declarative statement to her, her full, his full-out assault on Eve in the temptation. And he says this, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat, your eyes are going to be opened, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And then he, his promise is that God is holding something back from you so that you can't flourish and become the human beings that, that you really can be. You can become God's. Now, we know the story. Eve and then Adam, they were deceived. They ate of the tree. And just as God had said, they died that very day. They didn't die physically, but something down deep inside of their humanity died, their spirit. And their minds were no longer saturated with the reality of God's real presence and their co-partnership with God in building this Eden project was exchanged with a, with, for a co-partnership with Satan in a mission to destroy the world. And last week we looked at four ways that Satan goes about to destroy the world. Spiritual destruction, self-destruction, relational destruction, and environmental destruction. Satan hates this planet. He hates everybody and everything on it and in it. And he is out to destroy it. That is his mission. The diametric opposite mission that God gave to Adam and Eve. But even after what Adam and Eve did, God's love for them and this planet did not diminish or shrink one ounce. And so God goes on to promise to send a Savior into the world 
to restore the Eden project of redeeming humanity and taking the love and beauty and goodness and harmony of Eden and God to the rest of the world. And God confronts Satan with this, with this restoration project in verse number, this salvation project in chapter 3, verse 15. And, and these are among the most amazing words in the entire Bible, Genesis 3:15. This is what God says to the enemy. He says, and I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you, that is Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then notice how it switches to the singular. It says, he will crush your head. Who is that he? Well, that he is, an, is a coming descendant of Eve, someone who's going to be born far off many centuries down in history. He is going to crush your head, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. And this is the first amazing reference to Jesus Christ in the entire Bible, and it comes early in the Bible. It comes immediately after humanity got in trouble, and God could have just wiped his, could have, could have scratched the whole thing and forgotten it all. But instead, God loves humanity, and he loves this planet so much that he made that promise of a coming Savior. And then it's referring to the battle between Satan and Jesus Christ that was waged at the cross. Satan, like a serpent, as Genesis 3.15, struck Jesus in the heel. And one commentator said the nails in Jesus' feet are sort of reminiscent of that, of that prophecy, connect with that prophecy. But, and, and Satan was trying to pour all of the poison of evil, all of the poison of hell, all of the poison of sinful humanity. He was injecting that into Jesus Christ when he struck him, thinking that he could once again destroy God's mission for this planet. But the fact is that Jesus Christ was sinless. He was holy and pure, and he was the Son of God. And so he ended up crushing Satan's head. And for every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, Satan is defeated. That's the victory. That's the, new, that's the promise of a new flourishing life that every person who, re, who listens to the call of Christ and receives him comes to experience when they come to know Jesus Christ. And Jesus proved that he defeated the enemy by his resurrection from the dead. Sin and death could not conquer Jesus Christ our Savior. For every person who comes to faith in Christ, the co-partnership with Satan will be broken and you can come back into that original co-partnership with God in which he will lead you to being restored to the person he created you to be. Now, that's where we've come from. Now, here's what we need to hear today. I want to share two basic things here this morning. Number one, Adam and Eve ran off and hid in the garden after they messed up. But God went searching for them. So if you're here this morning and you are hiding from God, running away from God, or if you just see God as 
some sort of unreal, remote, religious figure. Not personal at all, but sort of distant, a million miles away. Whatever your case might be, Jesus came into the world to reestablish for you and in you the same kind of reality, sense of the reality of God that Adam and Eve originally had. And for Adam and Eve, when they were in that garden, the, rea- the real presence of God, the, real, the, the reality of God was as, as, as much as they could reach out and touch their hands. I mean, what they could, everything they could see. God was real to them. What the, what the promise of Christ is, is that you can once again enter into a personal experience of the reality of God by placing your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, the message of Christ is not just an invitation to take some sort of a blind leap into the religious dark, hoping you're going to grab a hold of something, or that you just have to force yourself to believe that Jesus really is who he said he was. That's not Christianity. Now, that's the kind of faith that we get in other religions of the world, other belief systems. But the unique thing about the gospel is, and Jesus told this to Thomas, Remember, Thomas said, I will not believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I won't believe he he rose from the dead until I see him with my own eyes. And I can reach out and I can touch his wounds. I can see him standing in front of me. Then I'll believe. Then I'll be a Christian. And there are a lot of people who hold that very same attitude today. But Jesus, here's what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, Thomas, you have believed and you've experienced me because you see me. But blessed are those who, having never seen me, believe in me. What was Jesus driving at? He was saying, when you you come to Christ with your heart, repenting of sins, trusting him as your Savior and Redeemer, you will meet a real person, and he will reveal himself to you down in that deep vacuum that was vacated The presence of God vacated Adam and Eve in humanity. Jesus Christ has come to come come streaming back into your life, to the depths of your being, and reestablish an experiential relationship with him so that you know he is real. The Apostle Paul said it this way, our spirit, our human spirit, will bear witness with the Holy Spirit that this faith is real and it's true. So the invitation for you, is to come to Christ and you will meet a real live person. And you do that, we all do that, by repenting of our sins and receiving him as our Savior. Now, the second thing is this. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you already know him, I have a question for you this morning. And here's the question. Are you back on mission with the Eden Project? Are you back on mission? Or have you come to know Jesus, but still have mostly a foggy idea of why, or of the purpose in knowing him? You know, we speak of Jesus a lot as our personal Savior, and that's a great term. It's a good term. It's simply saying that we can know him personally, what I just described. And we use that phraseology a lot. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? But, I, but here's, here's the drawback on that terminology. 
it could lead us to understand that our salvation is just personal. But the salvation that the Word of God speaks about is not just personal. This salvation was given to redeem this entire planet, to redeem every human being. It's not just Jesus and me. Because we have a world around us that is dying. And Jesus was sent to save us in order to reestablish the co-partnership with him that would send us out into this broken world to redeem it by his power and by the power of the Holy Spirit and bring this earth back to flourishing as God originally intended. Let me read for, read for you the mission that God has given us once again. It's the same mission that he gave Adam and Eve. It's never changed. Genesis 1.28, let me read it again. God blessed them. He blessed Adam and Eve. And this is what he said to them. And this is what he says to us. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The only difference now is that the world is broken with evil and pain. So now, when we get up to go to work every day, and we've understood in this series that the same Hebrew word for work, when God said to Adam, go and work the garden, the very same word means to serve or to worship. So when you go out to fulfill your professions tomorrow morning, what we've been learning is this, whatever your calling is in life, we're going out to worship God in what we do. And in that worshipful spirit, to bear witness to Jesus Christ so that we are a testimony to our world, drawing them back, calling them back to the kind of person that God wants them to be. So, here's a concern. And this is a concern that the Apostle Paul had. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he writes this to the Christians in the church at Corinth. And this is what he says. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul's concerned that Satan is going to draw Christians away from their deep, pure devotion to Jesus Christ. He's going to draw them into some sort of a personal, inward, self-serving kind of faith in Christ instead of one that is filled with power and life, filled with mission to go into the world, demonstrating to the world that what was lost in Eden can be, can be regained in Christ. I think he's, he's afraid that just like Adam and Eve were drawn away from the mission, so we will be drawn away from the mission. Because Satan still has the power to to tempt, to deceive. But how could Satan do that? How could he pull that off? Well, what did he do with Adam and Eve? He drew them away from the mission by drawing them away from the Word of God. He came to them and said, did God really say? And when, when Satan asked that question, he wasn't asking Eve to fill him in on what God had said. He already knew what God had said. Satan already knows the Word of God. He, he, he has it memorized. He knows this book inside and out. So he was there to use the Word to deceive. 
You know, Satan is afraid of the Word of God. And let me tell you some reasons why he's afraid of the Word of God and why he, has to, why he seeks to draw God's people away from it. One reason he's afraid of the Word of God is because of what the writer of the book of Hebrews says, says this. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the human heart. Hebrews 4.12. Another reason why Satan is afraid of God's Word is because of what the Apostle Paul says. He says all the Scripture, that would be everything that's written in this book, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God can be totally equipped for every good work. And there we're right back to the Genesis Project again. God's called us to go out and do his good works in this planet to bring testimony to him. You know, Satan um, doesn't give up easily. The first thing he did after Jesus was baptized and about ready to launch his ministry, the first thing he did, he came, he brought the same temptation essentially that he had brought against Eve. He was now going after Christ to see if he could pull him away from the mission and from the restoration plan that God had. And you'll remember that Satan came to Jesus with three temptations. How did Jesus defeat Satan each and every time? Well, every temptation that came, Jesus responded with these words. It is written. What he did was he came back to a passage from the Old Testament every single time, and he put it right in front of Satan's face. The Word of God says... It is written. And, he, and Satan could not draw Jesus away from the mission because the word of God was deeply embedded and planted in Jesus' heart and Jesus' mind. And you might say, well, yeah, he was Jesus. He was born knowing this book. Wait a minute. That's bad theology. Jesus, when he, when he came into the world, Jesus uh, laid aside the exercise of his divinity, though he is the author of this book, okay? He laid aside the exercise of his divinity. And so when Jesus came into the world and took on humanity, how did Jesus come to know this book? He came to know it in the same human way that you and I do. He came to know it by studying it, reading it, listening to it, letting, soaking it into his heart, his soul, his life. Jesus was modeling for us the art of being human. That's what his humanity was all about. That's why he laid aside. He identified with us. Not in our sins, but in our human limitations. He came and he endured that. Uh, and so what Jesus is telling us clear and loud is if we want to overcome the enemy, if we want to overcome evil in this world, if we want to live the kind of life, human life that he called us to live, then Jesus found that strength and power in the living, powerful Word of God. That's where we're going to find it. Now, one of those temptations of Jesus came after the 40 days, you know, the 40 days of fasting, and Jesus was really hungry. That's a part of his humanity too. 
And Satan said to him, and this had to be tempting, put yourself in Jesus' shoes there. You haven't eaten for 40 days, okay? He says, you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Jesus probably could have done that. But you know what Jesus did instead? He reached way back into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. And once again, he said to Satan, it is written, and listen to this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is how we live. Now, how many of you in here today like bread? Okay, I think it's almost 100%, right? How many, uh, okay, okay. How, many, how many of you like Maggiano's bread? I just had some a week ago. Uh, nothing better than Maggiano's bread straight out of the oven. Let me ask this. Where does the written word of God come from? Where is it baked? Where was it baked? The Apostle Peter tells us. He says this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of the Scriptures, no word that is written in this book, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men of God spoke and then they wrote from God as they were carried along, guided by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who baked this book, to use that terminology, okay? This is the spiritual bread that Jesus was talking about, that we like the physical bread, bring it on, but man doesn't live by that. We live by every word. We live by the spiritual bread that the Holy Spirit serves. I would say this, that the greatest need in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, the greatest need in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, and the greatest need for every church right now is a new hunger for the spiritual bread of God's Word. But, I would also say this, it could well be that the greatest neglect of Christians right now is the bread of God's Word. The biggest neglect. And why, why is that? I would say a couple reasons. One is a lack of hunger. A lack of hunger. A hunger for God will be a hunger for His Word. You can't separate the two. A person cannot say, I am hungry to know God without the same time saying, I'm hungry for this book. Because the way we come to know Him more deeply is through the pages of His Word coming alive in our lives. When people are flocking into gatherings like this, when God's people are flocking into, into gatherings like this where the Word of God is sung in worship and then taught and preached for 30 minutes or so. And when the people of God are flocking into small groups to hear and learn and study and soak it in and grow in God's Word, 
then I would say the church is hungry for God. Satan's desire has always been, he's not against religion. He's not even against the Christian religion, as long as he can keep it a religion. The Apostle Paul talked about a form of Christian religion when he made that statement uh, about uh, a form of religion, but denying the power thereof. And that's what Satan wants. He wants a hollowed out kind of Christianity. And he, the only way he can succeed in hollowing out our faith and giving us more a form of Christianity than the power and strength that God intends it to have is by decreasing our hunger for God's Word, the spiritual bread. I would say this, just flat out simple. I think it's, it's stated in the Word of God. If we are not growing in the Word, we're not growing in Christ. We're sort of static in our faith. And I'm preaching to myself as well as anyone who's here this morning. I always, no sermon I ever speak is just out that way. I speak to myself too. So I want you to know that, okay? But I think this is really gets down to the crux of the matter. I think this is really, really important. Uh, I think there's a second reason, or let me say this. John recorded these words of Jesus, spoke to his followers, followers the night before his death. John chapter 15, verse number 7. He says, if you abide in me, remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. That's an amazing statement. How can he say something like that? I think the reason Jesus can say something like that is because the more I let this word abide inside of me and shape me and my thinking and who I am, my attitudes, the more my whole being becomes aligned with the will of God and the things God wants to do, his mission. And so if I'm aligning myself with him, then I can ask him the requests that are going to come flowing out of my lips are going to be the things that God wants to do. And verse number eight, he says, this is to my Father's glory so that you can bear much fruit that's, that's Genesis language. Bear much fruit. Flourish. Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then the second thing I think that sometimes keeps uh, God's people out of the Scriptures, away from, God, uh, from spending time in the Word, is that it can be sort of intimidating. It can be a little bit intimidating especially if you've never even had much experience with the Bible, maybe didn't even grow up in a home where you ever even opened up a Bible. That's very possible. Uh, it can be intimidated, intimidating. So here's what we always say, and you've heard it said here many times, uh, when you're just getting into the Scriptures, start in the book of John, in the New Testament. Start there and get, begin to get a grip on that and then don't, and soak it in. But don't get discouraged by the things you don't understand. Grab a hold of the things you do. And the more you continue and the more you stay in it, it's the, the light and understanding will begin to grow. It'll begin to come your way. Or maybe you're listening on your smartphone. You can listen to the Word of God. 
And write down things, journal it. Be as consistent day by day as you can in setting time aside by yourself with God to open up his word and get into it because it, it, it is what is the transformative power in your life and mine. Uh, you can also get into, get with other Christians and learn it together. That's why we have small groups around here. Uh, Plug into Moody Radio. They have some great teaching on Moody Radio. But don't become codependent on Moody Radio. Don't become codependent on Sunday morning sermon. If that's the only word of God we're getting during the week, it's, you know, it's, uh, it can be spiritually emaciating, okay? Uh, we need more than that. We need to be in this book on our own, feeding and, and getting a good square meal, okay? Almost as as frequently as possible on a daily basis. Next week, uh, I want to talk about this second point in a little more depth, about how, how do we hear God speak to us personally when we begin to really get into his word. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But I want to close this morning just with this statement that... Um, only the power of the Word of God, ignited by the Spirit of God, will get us and then keep us focused and on mission with the Lord. God showed this to the prophet Ezekiel in a great prophecy, and I'm just going to close with reading what happened here. Ezekiel chapter 37 shows the power of God's Word. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit, of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. Ezekiel's having a vision. And this valley was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy, speak to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So he spoke over them, these dry bones, he spoke over them the word of God. This is what happened. As I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones began to come together, bone to bone. There's a song about this. You may have heard it, okay? Uh, anyway, I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me again, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered into them, they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And you know what? I believe in Ezekiel's day for, and for our day that it is the Word of God that brings life into the people of God, keeps us from becoming dead bones, and keeps us full of the breath of the Holy Spirit and full of the power of the Lord. So let's just renew our commitment, beginning with Pastor Jim. Let's renew our commitment to, to be in the bread, to be, to be eating the bread, and staying in God's Word. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we have some, you, you have one that you can take with you freely as a gift at the information desk after the service.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we'll just take to heart this very simple message this morning, a reminder of how very, very important it is that we do not allow the enemy to draw us away from your word. But Lord Jesus, as you did, we stay connected to it. We soak it in. We stay in it. We live in it so that the power of this word can shape us and mold us, Lord, and help us be more and more those reflections of Christ in our world. And Heavenly Father, we give you praise and we thank you for these things. We pray them all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.